Hello, all you horror maniacs, fiends of the fright, lost souls in the crypt. This is the Horror Hound. Welcome to episode 13 of the Horrorverse. In this episode, I will be talking about Friday the 13th. I will be comparing the 1980 version directed by Sean S. Cunningham and the 2009 version directed by Rob Zombie. Additionally, I will be letting you all know my opinion as I compare both movies along with which ones I thought had the best acting and script, the best suspense and scares, the best gore, the best villain, and the best final girl. All this and much more in this episode. Essentially, in 1980, the world lost the ability to look at wholesome, scenic summer camps and feeling anything but terror. Who's the culprit? Friday the 13th, of course. A brilliant, bloody blockbuster that tore beautiful Camp Crystal Lake to smithereens. But in the years since, there's no refuting that he's become the summertime boogeyman. Few who have seen the Friday the 13th movies are able to go camping without looking over their shoulder once or twice for a maniac in a hockey mask wielding a machete. His persistence, brutality, stealth, and supernatural powers make him the menace of skittish viewers' nightmares and the foundation of the slasher genre. What began as a classic morality tale wrapped up in some good old-fashioned Hollywood violence has thrived into one of the most complex and lore-heavy horror franchises in history. Whether he's enigmatically surviving drowning or being literally dragged to and subsequently returned from hell, Jason's storyline can be hard to pin down. To help you better understand the mass figure haunting your nightmares, I'm here to explain Jason's backstory from his brutal beginning to the eerie end. Ranging from the classics like Enrico Dickman's Nosferatu to Rob Zombie's Friday the 13th, horror movies have undeniably evolved with the conventions and their resources. Typically, horror films are set in a remote area where there's no help for the characters and no expectation of finding somewhere to run with the succor of the potable fallacy of thunder and rain. The lightning use, usually is responsible for the effect of a suspenseful scene. For example, lights flickering or no lights at all, which generally means something bad is about to happen. I believe this method is used to build up the suspense and have an alarm reaction from the audience. Costumes are very conventional to the characters, which are dressed differently from the blonde wearing low cut and revealing clothes to the jock who wears a tight top or a t-shirt which creates the nature of the characters. Audio, on the other hand, plays a significant role of horror films because audio sets the mood and helps build suspense. A favorite amongst directors and producers is the embellished, diegetic sound because it creates tension in the film. But what makes the film so important and what makes the audience not lose curiosity? The exhibit that I would like to administer is Sean S. Cunningham's Friday the 13th, because when it was first released in 1980, it was expected not to do so well in theaters, and the ratings weren't so hot either. Unexpectedly, the film was an ongoing series that kept the audience in awe, undeniably making it one of the best films ever made. The character Jason Voorhees, who is one persistent son of a bitch, has been sank, knifed, pierced, hacked in half, scorched alive, poached in acid, and blown to bits. However, we could all learn a thing or two about persistence and following through on our dreams from Jason Voorhees. 
13 installments from the original, I would say this movie went from worst to first in its time, proving that persistence actually means something to writers and producers. Especially Rob Zombie wanted to remake the film in his own vision, carrying on the legacy of the infamous killer. 35 years or so after the original, we ask ourselves why did Jason keep coming back and killing almost innocent people? That's right, almost innocent people. You heard me. <laughs> the answer is quite simple, really. Jason just wanted some peace and quiet. An unattractive, say, to say the least, child drowned at Camp Crystal Lake knowing that he could not swim to save his own life. He died tragically. Aww. While in the midst of that happening, the camp counselors did nothing to save him from drowning because they were too selfish and disgusted with the appearance of Jason. Hey, that's not what I heard, pal, okay? From what I heard, two horny counselors decided to get it on somewhere in a cabin while Jason was drowning and they just didn't give a shit. That's just a theory, by the way. I don't really give a shit. Anyway, his mother, who wanted revenge for her son's death in the first place, only appeared in one of the films because she was decapitated by one of the would-be victims. But this raises the question how Jason witnessed his mother's death in one of the scenes if he drowned in the lake as a child. This was thought to be a twist concocted by the producer himself. In another film, some years later, Jason is revived with a motivation of retribution on all camp counselors and whoever decides to be brave enough to visit Camp Crystal Lake. There are many summaries to this film, and it changes every time someone wants to refurbish it in their own vision, also known as an anthology film. Jason, Mother is talking to you. Put the weapon down and come to Mommy. That's a good boy. That's my Jason. You know what, Pamela? I'm tired of hearing your voice. Shut up. I know you want Jason to kill these people and get his damn weapons, but shut up. Anyway, while Friday the 13th is very popular for its setting at Camp Crystal Lake, that somewhat isolated area provides the basic premise of a classical cult horror film. However, the main character is the famous killer that has been copied in the past, which means there's a huge fan out there who admires his lifestyle. The hockey mask, the machete, and the torn clothing, which is the stereotypical costume for a killer who wants revenge. The thunder, lightning, and never-ending downpour of rain while Jason chases his victims through the woods of Camp Crystal Lake, and it wouldn't be a Friday the 13th film if the female victim did not trip over an invisible stump. Yes, it happens. They trip over something that's not there. How is that even physically possible? According to the laws of physics, that just pretty much sums that person up to an idiot. Moving on. So thanks to the imagination of the writers and producers of this cult contemporary franchise, the idea was to open the doors for many more films that might identify with Friday the 13th. Not only did the movie carry for 12 more installments, it also gave birth to many other subgenres, such as teen horror, monster horror, slasher, supernatural horror, and zombie horror. Anyway, the slicing and dicing with the machete inspired other films such as Nightmare on Elm Street. The undead aspect probably raised the rebirth of Night of the Living Dead, which was titled Return of the Living Dead. I didn't know that. Cool beans. So, on to comparing the 1980 and 2009 versions. This is just my personal opinion. No need to get your underwear in a bunch. Just, just hear me out, okay? 
So the original Friday the 13th doesn't exactly have a distinctive directing style. Sean S. Cunningham's direction is very straightforward, but the point of view shots of the killer are nice. That's a nice touch. There aren't any special camera tricks or cool shots in the film, but Friday the 13th doesn't pretend to be anything it isn't. Made on a budget of $550,000, the money went straight to the gore effects. More on that later. Hey, 550 grand was a lot back in the 80s. Just saying. It was also the first movie of its kind to secure distribution in the United States by a major studio, Paramount Pictures. Cunningham directs the point of view shots with self-confidence and poise. But what I love about what he does is that there are moments when you think you are Mrs. Voorhees' point of view, only to realize you're not. It's a nice little trick that Cunningham pulls at and it's quite effective. He also uses shadows effectually, specifically with the axe and Marcy's death scene and Mrs. Voorhees' shadow in her final confrontation with Alice. It's not masterful by any means, but it's a cool technique. It is interesting to note that Friday the 13th feels different from all the films that feature Jason. So, all the sequels, yeah, we'll get to that later. It doesn't really matter in relation to this post, since I'm discussing the movie on its own merits. But it's interesting nonetheless. I think the fact that it wasn't intended to be a franchise starter helps the viewing experience. Still, the fact remains that the original Friday the 13th is a very plainly shot film. There's absolutely nothing special about it. There's a reason you don't hear Sean S. Cunningham's name mentioned along with the likes of John Carpenter and Wes Craven. The remake, on the other hand, has a very stylish look to it. Marcus Nispel is no stranger to conventional shoots. After directing a ton of music videos in the 90s, he was hired to direct the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 2003. That film was pretty gritty film, and arguably the best of the horror remakes in the 2000s. But Nissel didn't bring that same sense of grittiness to Friday the 13th, which was disappointing. Rather than make a dark, scary film, Nissel sends most of the middle chunk of the film in daylight, which is par for the course in a Friday the 13th film. As weird as it may sound, it feels lighthearted, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, it's just different. The best way to describe the remake is slick, if you want to use that word in those terms. That is exactly the first thing you think of when it comes to Friday the 13th, but it is what it is. The film certainly looks great, and while it doesn't have Cunningham's point of view shots, it's a much better made film. Yes, I may get a lot of crap for this, but between Sean S. Cunningham and Marcus Nispel, the latter is the better director. He's no auteur, but he produced a solidly directed film. Now, when it comes to best acting in script, 2009 tops the, tops the chart. The acting in the original Friday the 13th isn't going to win any Oscars. It's not terrible by any means, but a lot of it does come off as pretentious. One good thing about the group of kids is that they all actually feel real like real people. This is probably because of the fact that most of them knew each other before filming, so they were all friends in real life. One thing that's always troubled me about the Friday the 13th franchise is the characters like to talk to themselves a lot to tell the audience what they're thinking. This never comes across as genuine, and it feels forced. So you see Robbie Morgan, who runs into this problem a lot as Annie, as we never get to see her interact with any of the other, other, other campers. Sorry, excuse me. She's just walking around, talking to herself, and it's silly. Weirdly enough, one of the best acting scenes in the film is when Alice finds a snake in the cabin 
and everyone comes in to help her kill it. It's a small, barely memorable scene, but it feels real in the actress sell it. Best suspense and scares goes to Sean S. Cunningham. Does anyone find the original Friday, Friday the 13th that scary? It's fun, sure, but it's not particularly scary or terrifying. This may be a sort of effect of age, but as what they had been scary in 1980 is scary now in 2021. I mean, the film chooses not to show the killer for the majority of the film. With Betsy Palmer only showing up for the last 15 minutes, still she gives a chilling performance that does not that does I'm sorry that does send shivers up the spine. And more on that bit. Um, while the film isn't particularly scary, it does have a few good jump scares. With the final bit with Jason out of the water, Jason jumping out of the water and being a little jump out of the your seat moment. Jack's death was also a great jump scare, with Mrs. Voorhees' hand, or whose ever hand it was, coming out from underneath the bed to hold him down while an arrow punctures his throat. Straight to the point. Anyway, the remake peaks early. While not overly terrifying, the opening sequence is a masterclass on Friday the 13th. What it does lack in scares, though, it makes up for an intensity. Would that intensity have crossed over to the remaining 80 minutes of the film? So, Friday the 13th does a, have a fairly good job at avoiding jump scares, but it also does a pretty good job at avoiding scares in general. There is some suspense peppered throughout the film, but overall the film sort of has you rooting for Jason. It's impossible for a film to be scary if you're rooting for the villain. While many people may lament Jason's intelligence in the remake, it does make him a scarier and more formidable foe. Alright, when it comes to gore, 2009 tops the category. Half of the kills in the original Friday the 13th happened off-screen. This is unexpected, considering it's known for being a gory film. The deaths that are shown are quite bloody, and Tom Savini's effects work is top-notch. From Jack's arrow in the throat, to Marcy's axe in the face, and decapitation of Mrs. Voorhees, Friday the 13th has a few standout gore moments. But, surprisingly, the remake is not that gory. I'm not sure what the filmmakers were thinking when they chose to remake Friday the 13th, which is essentially a remake of chunks of different films in the franchise, but many of the deaths in the film are pretty tame. That is not going, that's not a good thing to say when you have 14 deaths in the film. One certain thing about the remake is that the first kill is off screen. I'm not saying we need to see all the deaths or that more gore would make the movie better, but since we're in the gore category, the comments must be made. And they're going to be made, trust me. The best death is probably Chelsea's machete to the head, but even that isn't scary, but very inventive either. So, Jason's weapons in the film include a machete, a bow and arrow, a screwdriver, an antler, and a fireplace poker. That is a lot of items that Jason does the same thing with, stab people. The whole film is, missed, is a missed opportunity in the gore department. Best villain goes to the 1980s version. Betsy Palmer grounds Mrs. Voorhees in, and what could have been a campy, extravagant performance from another actress is given a sense of realism. She is one of the great villains of the horror genre for a reason. She gives a fantastic performance and humanizes what is probably written as a two-dimensional villain. May she rest in peace. Best final girl goes to Sean S. Cunningham. Yes, sir. So Alice is in the background for the majority of the film, which is true of most of the final girls in the franchise, but she just a little boring. 
She's just not actually scared for much of the time, but she does know how to put up a fight. Her clash with Mrs. Voorhees is highly amusing. And she also proves to be fairly successful and, well, using things to, like, rope the tight door shut. Can you sense the sarcasm? <laughs> anyway, she will always be remembered as a girl who decapitated Mrs. Voorhees. But she just doesn't do much else with the film. And you know what? She dies in the first scene of the sequel anyway. <laughs> Alice is always going to be remembered as a great funnel girl because of her role as the first one in Friday the 13th franchise. But she's really not that great. We're just judging solely based on her skills at survival and Clay has her beat. So, my favorite plot and twist out of the franchise, which I think is excellent by the way, although Jason's numerous returns from death were unlikely, it wasn't until the sixth movie that the story of Jason Voorhees took a turn for the totally supernatural. That's right, Friday the 13th, the final chapter, was not actually the final chapter. <gasps> what? So, after being murdered by Tommy, Jason is buried for years. Tommy struggles with PTSD and hallucinations, leading to numerous times in psychiatric hospitals and halfway houses. By 1986, Tommy is ready to finally put Jason behind him, traveling back to Camp Crystal Lake, and burning the killer's body. Yeah, like that ever worked before. Come on now. He and a friend from his last institution dig up Jason's corpse, only for Tommy to lose control and start stabbing the body with an iron fence piece. At that moment, lightning strikes on Rod as, as it's embedded in Jason's chest, reviving him through electricity. Just like that, Jason becomes his old, old power himself. It's alive! It's alive! I think they put a Frankenstein reference in that one. Come on now. Anyway. But most notably, Friday the 13th inspired most, but not all, slasher films that involve teenagers, which may have included Psycho carrying Halloween. But, by taking some of Hollywood's all-time great horror movies and throwing them into a blender, Friday the 13th accidentally created the no-frills platonic ideal of the slasher movie, and its modest pleasures that have only grown more potent in comparison to the scores of slipshod knockoffs it inspired. The original Friday the 13th is a significant movie to the horror genre, and has earned its place in history as an inspiring slasher film. But that doesn't change the fact that it is cheaply made in a total ripoff of a much better film. It has its moments, but taken on its own and not viewed as a franchise starter to one of the greatest slasher series ever made. It's really not that good. It's a bold statement, I know, but I stand by it. The remake, by comparison, is the better film. It's not perfect, but it is expertly made, with a solid cast, and it's and it's strongly directed. I may burn in hell for saying this, but the remake is is a better film from a technical standpoint, just not a creative one. So, it may go down in history for being the slasher film of the 2000s, or even brought up in the film discussion like the original has, but it's still the better film. And not to mention, um, I posted on Facebook, um, uh, I asked my friends of mine that, uh, which one they thought was the best one, the 1980 to 2009 version. And I got Peter, who says he likes them both. He feels that both of them are relevant for the time they came out. I agree, Peter. I really do. And they, they are so closely made to each other. And the script was almost verbatim to the original, of the you know the two thousand nine two thousand nine version. I thought it was it was close. I really did. Except they could have done without some scenes. Just saying, like the dude taking the crap in the woods. No, I could I could have I could have gone my life on seeing that, but. Burning the woman in a sleeping bag over a campfire. That was cool. I mean, that was pretty intense. So, Michael Tez, good friend of mine, Mark Fignano, by the way, 
He said 1980 had to use more technique on how to put the scare out than compared to the most recent who just went with better CGI and cameras. More thought was put into the 1980 version. You are correct, sir. The 1980 version was more creative than the 2009. I agree. I mean, it's there. The creativity by Sean is kind of was cool. Like I said before, you know, the point of view shots and the missed scene, the resources, which is cool. Opposed to the CGI in 2009. I mean, it, it, it feels and looks fake, but the purpose is there. So I really can't knock it. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to this comparison of the 1980 and the 2009 version of Friday the 13th. All you sexy bastards, have a good evening. Have a good weekend. And if you plan on going to the Super Bowl party to a friend's house, whatever, please drink responsibly as long as you're 21. No underage drinking, not allowed against the law. Please drink responsibly. If you do plan on drinking, make sure you have a designated driver. Because I'd like to see all you sexy bastards and magnificent motherfuckers back to listen to my podcast the following day at the Super Bowl. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I don't want to do it. But thanks for listening. This is the Whorehound signing off. Good night. On the next episode of the Horrorverse, join me as I discuss and compare the Poltergeist movies. The original versus the remake. What did the fans and film critics have to say about the reboot? Does the scare factor for the original top the remake or vice versa? This and much more next time on the Horrorverse. Thank you for listening. Please support me by subscribing to my podcast on the following platforms. Anchor FM, Breaker Radio, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and Spotify.